Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the True Blue Crime Podcast. My name is Dan, and as always, I will be your host for this episode. For today's episode, I decided to change it up a bit and not only go back in history, but talk about an area of true crime that isn't often discussed, which is espionage. I'll be telling a story about American life during the start of the Cold War and how fear of communism and spying put two people in the electric chair. Now, before we get into this episode, if you'd like to get updates about what the podcast is up to, please like and follow the True Blue Crime Productions Facebook page. For more information, check out the show's website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. And if you'd like to email me directly, my email is truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com. If you can, please support the show via Patreon. Any donation level helps, and it'll help ensure I can keep making free episodes of the podcast and expand the podcast in the future. Any donations will receive a shout-out in a future podcast and a thank-you message from the host. For no cost whatsoever, please rate and review the show on whatever platform you're listening to it on. Thanks so much, and without any further ado, let's dive into this episode of True Blue Crime. On August 6th and 9th of 1945, the United States of America introduced the world to the horrors of the atomic age. The bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki would eventually end the war and avoid an allied invasion of Japan. An invasion plan codenamed Operation Downfall was set to be countered by Japan's Operation Katsugo. Japan's topography limited allied invasion locations, so Japan planned to defend those locations to the death in battles that estimated allied fatalities around half a million and Japanese fatalities, civilian and military included, to be around 5 to 10 million. The U.S. military was at a breaking point. Most of their 1.25 million casualties had occurred in the years between D-Day and the summer months of 1945. They had just taken the island of Okinawa, but at great cost to both sides. It was estimated that 12,500 American troops died taking o- Okinawa, and another 35,000 were wounded. The Japanese had lost over 100,000 soldiers and another 100,000 civilians had been killed during the fighting. Considering the small size of the island and the massive loss of life by both sides and civilians, the decision to drop the atomic bombs, although a difficult and controversial one, was deemed necessary to bring an end to a war before millions more died. While people will still argue if it was the right choice, the truth is that it happened and it did usher in the nuclear age. One country suddenly had the power to wipe an entire city off the map with a single bomb and an arms race that hadn't occurred since the birth of gunpowder was underway. When you combine the start of the Cold War, a race to build nuclear weapons, and a healthy dose of anti-communism, you get the makings of one of the biggest cases of espionage the United States has ever seen. At the heart of this case was a trove of decoded Soviet cables, codenamed Venona, that identified several espionage projects occurring inside the United States during the years 1943 to 1980. In 1946, the Soviets switched to an almost unbreakable coding system, so almost nothing was decoded from 1946 to 1980 but analysis of decoded messages during the years of 1943 to 1946 exposed some major operations. None gained more attention than the case of Julius and Ethel Rosenberg. Ethel Rosenberg was born Ethel Greenglass on September 28, 1950 in Manhattan, New York. 
She was the daughter of Jewish parents and had a brother named David. She had originally inspired to be an actress, but landed a job as a secretary in a shipping company where she got actively involved in labor disputes and joined the Young Communist League where she would meet Julius. Julius Rosenberg was born on May 12, 1918 in Manhattan, New York. He was a son of Jewish immigrants from the Russian Empire. During the Great Depression, he became the president of the Young Communist League where he met Ethel in 1936 and they married in 1939. So, I don't have a whole lot of crime scene or law enforcement experience to step back from in this case so as i go through the story here there's probably gonna be limited times that i interrupt and break down some of the research because as i've said before there's hours and hours of research that goes into writing these narratives and i can't put everything from the research into the narrative some things are just better explained freeform so I'm going to try to take you guys back in time to what things would have been like and, and where all this, this young communist league Because I feel like today, if there was a whole bunch of teenagers or early 20-somethings running around in a thing called the Young Communist League, people would be taken aback. And we have to remember that this is during the Great Depression. It's a time in which the most extreme haves and have-nots you've got extremely wealthy families and then you've got families that are dirt poor and can't afford to feed their children so it's it's this time in which communism the idea of equal distribution of wealth and labor really gained popularity especially among those who were children in the time period after the first war and then into the great depression it, it just became kind of this unifying idea for them that maybe maybe this was the answer and this was going on all around the world so it wasn't just just in america communism was taking hold in a lot of european teenagers and and then all the way obviously into russia and and china so this was kind of a global phenomenon and so while in america as we're going to find out the anti-communism machine kind of put a put a a kibosh on communism in america this is a time period before that so while there is going to be some anti-communist fervor as we talk about as we go forward in the 1930s leading up to world war ii this is not i guess as uncouth as it's going to become that these people would be joining this young communist league but it is going to have ramifications for them down the road so as I mentioned, Julius and Ethel, they meet in this Young Communist League, fall in love, and they get married in 1939. With the outbreak of World War II looming, Julius joined the U.S. Army in 1940 and applied his degree in electrical engineering in the Army Signal Corps at Fort Monmouth, New Jersey. The Army base was the site of important research on communications, radar, guided missiles, and electronics during World War II. He would work there until 1945 when the U.S. Army learned of his Communist Party past and discharged him. 
This is where things are going to get a little messy and hard to follow, so I'll break it down as easy as I can and repeat some things when necessary so it all ties together. Keep in mind that I'm working from documents and information provided by the U.S. government and the U.S. media at the time that may or may not be wholly factual. This was a time of great fear and panic about the Red Menace, and the trial occurred during the Korean War, so anti-communism fever was in full effect, and many will argue that the Rosenbergs were sacrificial lambs to appease an anti-communist American mob, but I'll lay it out as best as I can, and then you can decide for yourself. Our story begins on Labor Day in 1942. Labor Day has its origins in a work holiday to appreciate the work of labor unions in fighting for workers' rights, especially the eight-hour workday. The eight-hour workday was actually a May 1st victory, but President Grover Cleveland thought a national holiday too close to the May 4th radical socialist haymarket affair in which labor activists in Chicago were celebrating the eight-hour workday law and then attacked police officers sent in to disperse the crowd by throwing a stick of dynamite at the police officers and seven officers were killed and many were wounded this caused some great fear that socialism and anarchy was going to take over so the u.s decided instead of recognizing labor day as may 1st they would recognize it as the first monday in september but it still serves as an important day for workers rights on Labor Day in 1942, Julius Rosenberg was approached by a Soviet spymaster named Semyon Semyonov. At the time, the U.S. and Soviet Union were allies, united in their desire to defeat Hitler and his German occupation of most of Europe, North Africa, and the western edge of the Soviet Union. Although they were allies in that sense, they were not known to cooperate on matters of national security and actively spied on each other throughout the war. Rosenberg was selected by the Soviets due to his known communist ties and his position within the U.S. Army Signal Corps. During the war, Rosenberg was reported to have supplied the Soviets with thousands of classified reports, mainly regarding U.S. advancements in proximity fuses. These fuses were on the forefront of missile technology and set to replace less accurate rockets that were in use at the time. Missiles are guided rockets that can be controlled mid-flight to better hit their targets, and a proximity fuse ensures the missile detonates at the correct time. All forms of missiles, including air-to-air, surface-to-air, and all ground-targeting missiles rely on this technology. So this is something I do that I can take a, a step aside. So this, this is one of those things where I know I've talked in the past about how burglaries and robberies get interchanged and, and people use them inaccurately just because they think that they're interchangeable it's the same thing with missiles and rockets not that it's a big deal or it really applies to a whole lot of people's lives on a regular basis but if you ever want to know the difference between a missile and a rocket because people do use them interchangeably a rocket is a fire and forget so think of like a firework like you light the fuse and off it goes and wherever it goes it's going to detonate when it hits its target whereas a missile is a guided rocket so it is going to hone in on a target through a variety of different means they can be laser guided they can wire guided uh, it can be uh, as long as there's some type of a guidance system that can control the flight of that rocket in midair it is no longer a rocket it's now a missile so in world war ii in the beginning of world war ii 
all they had were rockets and so they would be firing these and again it's a fire and forget so you aim the rocket you fire and wherever the fins and directional and wherever the wind blows it and all that kind of stuff that's where the rockets gonna land by the end of the war they're developing missiles technology to the point that when you fire that rocket it is now a missile because you can control which target it hits so the selling of this proximity fuse might not sound like a lot people might say no big deal now the soviets have you know a way for something to blow up properly but it's you have to remember this is the beginning of the cold war and so all the missiles that are going to be used uh, that are going to be given to the North Vietnamese during the Vietnam War, whether that be their SAMs or surface-to-air missiles that shoot down U.S. planes or uh, the missiles, the air-to-air -air missiles that they give to, along with their MiGs to shoot down planes during the Vietnam War. These are all going to potentially come from information that's been given to them by Rosenberg. So we're going to break that down more in the future uh, as we go through each of the members of the spy ring and kind of what information they gave up. But it's one of those things that we can't think of it as just what was given to them at that moment. We have to think of all the technology that was advanced as a result of this espionage and let that germinate as as the story goes on. So you, you don't just think of it as a snapshot in time. Uh, you think of all the ramifications throughout the rest of the Cold War. Now in 1944, Semyonov, who was Rosenberg's Soviet handler, was called back to Moscow and replaced by a man named Alexander Feklazov. Rosenberg's new handler wanted him to recruit other communist sympathizers in the engineering world. He would work with other communist leaders to recruit Joel Barr and Alfred Sarant two more electrical engineers who in turn gave the Soviets over 9,000 pages of documents that contained detailed information on over 100 classified U.S. weapon systems. When the Soviet spy ring was about to be exposed, Barr fled the U.S. for France after his communist past was discovered. He would later flee France when he was identified as a spy and was given a, a new life and identity in the USSR. Surratt was interviewed during the initial investigation into the Rosenbergs, but was not arrested and fled three days later to Mexico. Now, this is where it gets interesting because he flees with his neighbor's wife, and both of them left families behind. So they both left their spouses and children behind to flee. So there's obviously a whole other story going on there where when it's time to pack up and go because you're about to be exposed as a spy instead of grabbing your wife and kids you grab the neighbor's wife and run and she runs with you so obviously there's a lot more going on to that story but the truth of the matter is Sarant and the neighbor's wife flee uh, New York and run to Mexico while in Mexico Sarant identifies some Russian agents at this store that he visits and they in turn secret Sarant and his now girlfriend to Moscow where he was reunited with Barr. The two of them moved to Leningrad with new identities and developed many computer and engineering advances for the USSR during the Cold War. Sarant died in 1979 of a heart attack and Barr returned to the US in 1992 after the fall of communism but continued to deny his involvement in espionage 
and would return to Moscow where he died in 1998. Rosenberg was also responsible for recruiting William Pearl, another engineer who obtained work for NACA, which was the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics, and this would eventually become NASA in 1958. So they're the forefront of aeroplane technology, eventually aerospace technology. Pearl was given access to classified jet propulsion technology and almost landed a spot on the U.S. Atomic Energy Commission, but a background check revealed he was connected to Barr and Sarant. And so in 1950, he was presented with $2,000, which is the equivalent to $25,000 today, and was told by Rosenberg to flee to Europe, but he refused, thinking he could salvage his career. A month later, he would be part of the Rosenberg trial. However, Pearl and his lawyer played many legal games with the U.S. government and were able to eventually lower the charges against Pearl to perjury for lying to the FBI, and he was found guilty of two counts of perjury and served two concurrent five-year sentences for his crimes and Pearl with his access to this NACA that he worked for it was said that he actually gave technology for the U.S.'s first fighter jet to the Soviets and again that may not seem like a lot today because you could say it probably wasn't that great of a jet or whatever it may be but when you're in an arms race and jet propulsion is the next and, and going to be the propulsion system of the future, any amount of information that your quote-unquote enemy is going to get in regards to your capabilities as well as advance their capabilities not only pushes them ahead, but it sets you back. So the fact that he sent this information to uh, the Soviets is a pretty big deal and somehow he finagled the way to only get five years of prison time on, on concurrent sentences so he's going to do two concurrent five-year sentences and for his crimes. Morton Sobel was another communist friend of Rosenberg's who was recruited for the spy ring. He held a degree in engineering and was working for the Navy Bureau of Ordnance in 1939 and went on to work with military contracts for General Electric Company. He would supply Soviets with many microfilms of classified documents mainly pertaining to military electronic equipment. After another member of the ring was arrested, Sobel and his wife fled to Mexico just like Sarant had, but Sobel was unable to secure transit out of the country and was eventually arrested by they said in the research it was Mexican thugs, but I don't know if these were Mexican police or Mexican federal officials, but somebody who was either paid or tipped off by the FBI in Mexico rounded up Sobel and his wife and brought them to the U.S. border and handed them over to the FBI. Sobel would go on trial for espionage and be found guilty and sentenced to 30 years. He served at Alcatraz before it was closed down in 1963 and was released from custody in 1969 after serving almost 18 years. He would continue to profess his innocence after his release and claim to have been a fall guy for the government and his claims of misjustice were a rallying cry for many extreme left-wing or socialist politicians and celebrities. However, in 2008, most of the grand jury notes from the trials were released to the public. 
Britain. After reading the grand jury notes, a reporter sought out Sobel, then 91 years old, for comment. Based on evidence released in the grand jury notes, Sobel would admit to the reporter that he did sell secrets to the Soviets, but only defensive radar and artillery devices. The reporter did some follow-up and found those secrets were likely used by the Soviets and given to the Koreans and North Vietnamese, possibly resulting in the loss of U.S. lives during those wars. It was the first time Sobol admitted to espionage, and he would die in 2018 at the age of 101. And again, this is another example of how the crime at the time, if you just say it now saying oh he sold some secrets to the soviets no big deal and even he sold said it as it was just some defensive radar stuff and and whatnot i think the point of that was that it wasn't nuclear because a lot of this is going to come down to what information the soviets gained about the their nuclear weapons program but what i think people fail to realize is the damage that was done with the release of documents and technological information for non-nuclear things as well. Every great story has a moment when the first domino falls. Up until 1950, the group had been working in relative secrecy and making money while selling secrets to the Soviet Union. But in January of 1950, a German-born scientist named Klaus Fuchs would be that domino. Fuchs was working for the Britain's Atomic Energy Research Establishment when he confessed to being a Soviet spy. He had strong communist ties and had been selling atomic documents to the Soviets for seven years. During that time, he had served on the Manhattan Project and at Los Alamos Laboratories in the U.S. In 1946, it became illegal to provide nuclear secrets to any country, even allied countries such as Britain, but Fuchs sold information to both British and the USSR during his time at Los Alamos. Information from the Venona Project indicated that Fuchs was a spy and he denied this three times before he eventually confessed. He gave up his courier, the man that would deliver the documents to Soviet operatives, a man named Harry Gold. Fuchs would be sentenced to 14 years under British law and he served nine of them before being released and defecting to East Germany in 1959. While in East Germany, he would serve many years in positions of leadership within the Academy of Sciences and died in Berlin in 1988. The man that Fuchs identified during his confession, a man named Harry Gold, was actually Heinrich Glodonitsky, a Swiss-born chemist to parents from the Russian Empire. At age four, they emigrated to the U.S. and the family changed their surname to Gold at the suggestion of an agent on Ellis Island. Heinrich would become known as Harry, so from that point on, his name would be Harry Gold. In 1915, they settled in a Jewish section of South Philadelphia. Harry said he had a good childhood and loved school and learning. He was put off by the ethnic discrimination in Philadelphia at the time as both Irish and Italian immigrants had superior numbers and often ran businesses that were not Jew-friendly. Gold graduated school in 1929 and tried to attend college but ran out of money, and then the Great Depression hit America. 
He worked for some time for a sugar company, but was laid off before Christmas in 1932. Eager to find work, he took a manufacturing job offered by an old classmate named Tom Black. They became friends, and Black tried to get Gold to join the local Communist Party. Gold was reluctant, but felt he owed his friend for getting him work when so many others couldn't find a job. So he agreed. But after a short time, he was offered his job again at the sugar company, and he took the job. But in 1934, he started selling company secrets from the sugar company to his friend Black. With his loose ties to communism and the knowledge that he was willing to sell secrets, Gold was recruited in 1940 to work as a courier for a Soviet spy named Jacob Golos. A few years later, Gold would be recruited by Semyon Semenov, the man who recruited Julius Rosenberg. Gold would work as the courier for the Rosenberg Ring for the latter part of the 1940s and was responsible for getting most of the stolen information from the engineers and David Greenglass to the Soviet officials. He was arrested in 1950 after Klaus Fuchs told investigators that Gold was the middleman. Under interrogation, Gold confessed to espionage and agreed to point prosecutors to several other members of the ring. This was likely to spare him from the death penalty. Gold pointed the finger at David Greenglass and admitted that he had delivered classified atomic information from Greenglass, from Greenglass to Soviet officials. Gold was sentenced to 30 years in prison, of which he worked 15, and was released for good behavior. He returned to Philadelphia after his release and worked as a clinical chemist at JFK Memorial Hospital until his death in 1972 during heart surgery. But let's go back to the main story. It was Fuchs naming of Harry Gold that brought down the Rosenberg spy ring, not by bringing down Rosenberg himself, but Rosenberg's brother-in-law, David Greenglass. David Greenglass was born on March 2nd, 1922 in Manhattan. His older sister was Ethel Rosenberg, and he looked up to his older brother-in-law, Julius Rosenberg. David joined the Youth Communist Party for a short period before David before joining the army in 1943. He worked as a machinist at several ordnance plants before being selected to work as a machinist with the Manhattan Project, eventually being sent to Los Alamos Laboratories. He had lied in his applications about his communist past in order to gain the required security clearance. In 1944, Julius recommended that the Soviets should use David's New York apartment as a safe house for document photography. When it was learned that David was working with the Manhattan Project, Julius Rosenberg's Soviet handler suggested they try to get David to steal classified information about the atomic bombs and pass them to courier Harry Gold and sometimes directly to Soviet officials in New York. David agreed and he and his wife were now part of the spy ring. He was deeply devoted to his wife and even turned down a chance to go to the Bikini Atolls to assist with the nuclear weapons test dubbed Operation Crossroads so that he could stay close to his wife. This was against the wishes of Julius and their Soviet handler. This would set up what many saw as the greatest spy trial in the history of America. So this is going to be a little bit shorter of an episode, mainly because... It's, again, one of those cases where to cover everything would probably be an hour and a half, and I 
never want to do an hour and a half episode if I can help it. I always want to try to keep them an hour or less. So this is broken up into two parts for that reason. It's also just easier for me when it comes to editing and uploading. It keeps the size of, of the files down. So, um, But before we get to part two, just kind of want to break down some of the stuff. It's very difficult. This codename Venona, basically they were intercepting cables from the Soviets that used code names for all of these members. And I want to say Julius's code name was Liberal, and there's a whole bunch of other code names. And I, I, it's very confusing. I knew it would be a hard case to kind of have people follow along who is who. We have the main players, which are Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, Ethel's brother and Julius's brother-in-law, David Greenglass, and then these other four scientists. And I only mention them just because they're part of a, of a greater ring, and th we will mention them again in part two in, in various things. But I didn't get all bogged down with the Soviet side of things at this point because there was about five or six different articles and each of them had different ways that and in some cases different handlers that were in charge of different parts of the spy ring and I just felt like that was going to get way too difficult to follow if I said well so-and-so recruited so-and-so and then introduced so-and-so to somebody else and then the next article would oftentimes refute that and and say that it was somebody else who introduced so the details about the soviets direct involvement in terms of who was in charge of this the spy ring from the soviet side was fuzzy at best so i kind of left that stuff out and again i really just wanted to focus on the main players here and so just to recap and make sure that we have the full understanding is the best that I could understand from the research is Julius Rosenberg is identified as a potential target by the Soviets in order to gain information. And he then in turn has other friends of his that are parts of this youth communist party or have connections to this communist party that are also engineers that also have jobs in either mil the military itself or companies that have military contracts so it was either a combination of julius recruiting these guys or julius giving the names of these guys to recruiters with the soviets but eventually the spiring is built it's difficult to know how much interaction certain members of this ring had with one another. It's clear that, I, I want to say it was Sarant and Barr, the two that ended up in Moscow together, they were roommates at some point in an apartment, so clearly they had some closer connections, but I don't know that, the, that Pearl and Sobel had a whole lot of connections. Again, I'm... I'm trying to picture this. I'm trying to picture in the middle of World War II, you've got these uh, spies that are working for the U.S. government, and I don't know if it's like the movies would show where these guys are meeting in dark alleys with trench coats and 
and exchanging stuff. And that was the other thing is they don't have Xerox copiers back then. So I'm trying to just figure out in the research how these guys got this information to each other. And from the sounds of it, it was like the movies where they had the little spy cameras and they're literally taking pictures of the documents on microfilm. And then that film is being given to the Soviet officials and then that film would be developed in its microfilm so you can have all these tiny little pictures on this film and then when it's developed and then you put it on for those of us that are old enough to know what microfiche was or, or microfilm readers it would be a way to store a ton of information in its physical form and basically you would put this piece of, of photographic paper under a, a, magnif a specially designed magnifying glass that would then project a larger image of what's on that part of the microfilm onto a, a screen so that it's then readable. So you can fit, let's just say it's a hundred documents onto a single piece of film as opposed to a large camera taking one picture at a time being able to hold 15 to 20 full-size pictures and then you have to have all these full-size rolls that you're giving no this this allowed them to take a lot of a lot of small pictures and surreptitiously get those pictures out of where they were working to the soviet handlers so some of it was kind of quote-unquote movie-like i guess in that sense the whole old little spy camera bond type stuff going on but again i don't know how much this ring worked together now it would come up and i'll talk about it in part two that when they're reviewing these venona uh, files they're seeing these code names together often in some of the, the the cables so it does appear like there was communication and we are seeing cases where julius is approaching other members of this ring and giving them money to facilitate an escape or or whatever it may be. So clearly there was some level of organization, monetary exchange, all that kind of stuff going on. So while we will cover in part two, some people argued the actual level of sophistication that existed amongst this ring and whether or not they were really as diabolical and destructive to u.s national security as people would later claim there does appear to be a groundwork for a pretty sophisticated spy ring the other thing we'll cover a little bit more in part two as well is a lot of people question why rosenberg would do this and it's hard to get a good grasp for that because again in World War II, when this is stuff is going on, it's almost all occurring in the war because in 1946, the Soviets changed their their coded message system and it became very difficult for the U.S. to actually intercept messages at that point. So they have proof that during the war, a lot of this information is going on, but Rosenberg is, is discharged from the army in 1945 and they don't think he had much access to stuff after that. So... He, in fact, even goes into business for himself, and this business fails. So it's it's difficult to say that 
a whole lot of the information was exchanged after World War II. And during World War II, as I mentioned, Russia or the USSR, they were our allies because of a mutual enemy. And many people in America wanted the war to come to an end. And one way the war could come to an end is for us to provide our allies with better technology and materials to beat Hitler and the Nazis. So there were going to be some arguments at some point, too, that while Rosenberg's actions were not in the best interest of national security in the long run, one could argue that what he was doing was not as anti-American as most people would make it seem, but it was more pro-communist in terms of helping Russia while they were our allies. It wasn't as if he was selling this information after we had ceased being allies with Russia and, and now it's in the middle of the Cold War and he's selling this stuff. So there's from a timeline perspective, there's going to be a lot of stuff that we cover in part two to keep in mind about how all this came to be so again i just wanted to do a quick summary there's a lot of information there's a lot of names there's a lot of dots to connect in this case and it's hard to do just via a podcast but i wanted to make sure that we know we've got rosenberg julius rosenberg who's in seems to be in charge of the spy ring he's got the four engineers that work beneath them and now he's got uh, his brother-in-law david as a part of the ring and they're giving information to Harry Gold and this uh, Klaus Fuchs it sounds like he was more of a outsider that was doing kind of his own thing it, it, from what I could tell he did not he was not recruited by Rosenberg or anybody within the spy ring so it's kind of one of those things where when he was exposed it it exposed a different spy ring through their courier. So although Klaus Fuchs kind of brings about the fall of this spy ring, I don't know that he was a part of it. There were a bunch of people that were named from the Los Alamos laboratories with communist ties that also are believed to be selling atomic information. But again, I didn't want to get too deep into other groups or other people going on because ultimately this is going to be about the trial of the Rosenbergs and I just wanted to keep it one degree or maybe at the most two degrees of separation away from the Rosenbergs so that it's it's easy to follow so again we've got the four engineers uh, Pearl, Sobel, Barr and Sarant, David Greenglass and the two Rosenbergs and, and then their courier, which is Harry Gold. So that's who we're going to mainly focus on in part two, what what happens with these guys. I already mentioned the, the punishments for Sobel and Pearl, and then Savant and Barr, they make their escape before they face any punishment and start working for the USSR. And then Gold and Fuchs have also both quote-unquote face their punishment they've all done plea deals and this is kind of like what we've talked about in with drug dealers in the past is you're trying to take down the kingpin you're trying to take down the guy who's in charge of, of the entire operation or the gal who's in charge of the entire operation 
it doesn't do a whole lot of good to throw away the low level members of of the ring and lock throw you know throw them in jail and throw away the key because they want you want to incentivize them to give up more information and you keep doing that up the ladder you keep cutting breaks with people and giving them lesser prison sentences if they cooperate and keep giving you names until you get to the person that's at the top and so they've in a way done this with a few of the people uh, along this list but eventually they're going to reach as we talk about next part the rosenbergs and david greenglass and feel like they've reached the top of the spy ring and this is when the hammer is going to drop because again we are in post at this point we're going to be in post world war ii beginning of the cold war the korean war era the spread of communism red menace all that stuff is going to hit as we get into part two here so i will work on getting part two out um should be out i would hope tomorrow and but we'll cover in part two we'll cover the trial the sentencing the many appeals some of the documents that show the moral dilemma that president eisenhower faced over this case and the fallout from all these decisions so that's it for today thank you guys for listening stay tuned for future episodes and feel free to write me at truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com you can also find me at truebluecrimeproductions on facebook and support me via patreon at truebluecrimeproductions so that's it for today thanks everyone for listening have a great day goodbye